Good. Uh, hi, Mark. Hey, Tony. Yeah, number three in faith, hope, and love. Yeah. Um, faith, hope, and love. I mean, I think on the last occasion we did, you applied that paradigm to Acts 17 and Philippians 2. Um, really what you what you're doing is a um, couple of paradigm shifts uh, faith hope and love as aspects of knowledge that knowledge isn't just grasping uh, objectified information and data um, and in a way it's a framework to humanize knowledge yeah and then I think the other thing that I found um, exciting is that it does amplify uh, the word uh, discipleship or following following Jesus, following Christ is um, uh, illuminating um, situations on, on the earth with, uh, with faith, hope and love. Um, that... So would you like to just give um, a little, your little summary of the faith, hope and love concept? Yeah, sure. So obviously, um, 1 Corinthians 13, you know, the famous chapter about love um, and which because it has that marvelous description in the middle of it of what love is like, it's, you know, love is not, is patient, not, you know, not rude, doesn't seek its own, own uh, ends. Um, then it's natural when you come to faith, hope and love, um, it sounds as though, you know, it's talking about some kind of virtues, you know, some sort of moral, ethical virtues, some sort of habits of how you treat people. Now, I'm not, I don't want to say for a moment those words are not applicable in those contexts. They are. Those words, faith, hope and love, uh, matter a great deal in terms of how it is that we, we treat one another and we see one another. But the context that I, I argue, the context in First Corinthians um, more fully, which we'll talk about in a moment, but, but even there in chapter 13, is that it begins and ends with knowledge. Uh, so in the opening bit, you've got you know uh, Paul saying you know even if I knew all things, um, but didn't have love, um, and his description is not that there's a there's a contra not that there's a contrast between knowledge and love, but there's a contrast between the ways that you know. There's a contrast between a way of knowing that has no connection to love, and likewise to faith and hope. And a way of knowing that is in fact that is in fact exercising faith, hope, and love. That that is the manner in which we we know. And so when he gets to the end of the chapter, um, he says, you know, that um, uh, things are passing. Now now we know in part. One day we'll know in full. Um, and uh, so he says, so these three remain: faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And that's you know, he, he's saying these three remain is in is in response to his comment about how that we know partially now, but one day one day we'll know in full. It's yeah. like I'm talking about how that you know the, the day will come when we know Jesus faith to face to face. And in in one sense, faith faith and hope don't kind of function the same way because the object of your faith is right in front of you. The object of your hope is right in front of you. Um, uh, but, uh, but I think what he's saying is that, that um, not only does this characterize what it is to know truly that it is a, a knowing by faith. Um, and that's not as in anti thought, anti reason, anti logic, but rather that I would argue that that all knowing, all reason, all logic, etc., actually requires faith. You know, it requires a belief that these human modes actually are, they work, they're effective. Um, but more importantly, that all knowing um, involves a standing on the shoulders of other people. Um, we, we can't, we're not autonomous. We can't know everything on our own. We can't know everything from scratch. We're, we're always living in a, in a context in which we know um, by uh, an acknowledgement and a respect, basically, of those who've gone before us. And all knowing has a kind of an orientation of it is for something. There is an on behalf of, which is, which is hope. And all knowing uh, is an embracing. Uh, it's an immersion. Um, it's a, um, uh, I think Polanyi, the philosopher, talked about, in my words, effectively, the more you distance yourself from something, even an inanimate object, the less you can know it. Um, it's, it's interesting um, you, you say that um, because uh, I, um, I had an experience um, when I was mentoring people in 
in in second road in, in our firm and um, some of the very bright young people were envious of the way that in I could get uh, more richly into a complicated subject so uh, and they said well how, how, how do we do that because it feels like we're in contrast you know skating along on the surface yeah now, yeah, at one level, I could say, well, I'm more experienced, you know, wait 20 years and it'll get better. Um, uh, but what we did was we did um, a, 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 a talk aloud spider diagram. So I, I said, let's just take a problem and let's, let's, let's experiment. So um, on a white, large whiteboard. So I did, I did one and, and the problems were objectified problems like, the transport system of a major city, you know, what's the problem with it? There was, there was, there was nothing intrinsically personal on any of the topics. Yep. And so I did mine and they did theirs. And it was a discovery for both of us because the critical difference um, uh, between them and my uh, diagrams and thoughts was that I introduced myself into the picture very early on um, yep. and did so vulnerably and honestly like, oh, you know, I, I never use public transport and I'm guilty about it. I'd, I'd have that kind of commentary. And um, that, didn't, that, that didn't just um, add little human touches. We watched that happen and I wish, I wish we'd recorded it because the evidence was clear that that seemed to unlock um, just another dimension, a, a deeper layer of associations, uh, connections and possibilities. Absolutely. And, and um, then I, I had um, a, a similar experience, you don't know about this one, where after we sold the firm um, uh, to Accenture and we were working with their Japanese team in Accenture strategy. And um, they're very, I think as a culture, objectified in that, you know, they don't bring a lot of themselves. And plus these particularly, and they're two young women, they're quite senior, but young women, uh, didn't speak, or one of them in particular didn't speak, only spoke very cautious English. Um, but getting them to do a spider diagram in Japanese where they talked about themselves and, and they picked this up far more than we did. They had a phrase for it, I get what it was called, um, tiki tiki or some phrase like that, which essentially is human beings. Hmm. And I just got an email from this young lady who's now a managing director uh, saying that she is continuing the vision of. Um, human-centred leadership, and she has several clients who want to be human beings. It was all in broken English, but it, it was very interesting to see by bringing a human perspective how that unlocked um, actually the objective analysis and creative thinking. Yeah, totally. And if you think about, you know, I think about some of the, the ones that you and I have worked with who are younger than us, you know, from really early, early days, I think about our, our other Tony uh, and, and a few others. Um, there was one of, the, one of the words I would use to describe them was a, a curiosity. And the curiosity was as much about people as it was about, uh, you know, a problem as such, being able to solve a problem. And, and so they, they, you, when, you, when you have that kind of curiosity, you can't help but uh, immerse yourself in something. You know, it's... Um, it's not as though you turn every topic into it being about you. That's not the point. But you're there. You're present in the thinking. Yeah, almost incarnate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And 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 therefore it's it's richer. And you know, we've seen we both, you know, um, mentored, trained many designers and facilitators. And and I would say that's the thing that that. Um, really determines whether they're going to be really, really good at this or how quickly they're going to become good at this. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so interesting. Well, anyway, Mark, um, what we said we'd do um, um, is look at uh, how this thing, not just technology, but faith, hope and love, works itself out across the sweep of Corinthians, which yep. obviously is a book about knowledge that and, you know, a passing reference would know that. So over to you. Take us through a bit of a journey of, of, of 1 Corinthians through this knowledge spectrum. Yeah, love to. So as you say, um, you know, the word, the word comes up all over the place, a, a, a few different words, uh, knowledge, knowing, um, but also wisdom. 
and and certainly for Paul, and not just for him, but for um, uh, his forebears um, in the Jewish scriptures um, and intertestamental literature, but even also in the in the Greco-Roman context, even though they come at them very differently, the issues of wisdom and knowledge are always very closely connected. Um, so Paul talks a lot, uses this language of knowledge and wisdom and also mystery. Um, and unlike uh, how that was being used in the Greco-Roman context, Paul doesn't use the word mystery to talk about something that is esoteric, something that is you know, odd and otherworldly and all the rest of it. Rather, he uses the word mystery to talk about that which is plain right in front of our noses, but we can't see until either A, it is revealed in history, or it is B, it is revealed by the Spirit. Um, and so, and, and what is revealed is not some oddball, you know, caftan wearing esoteric wisdom, but it's the it's the truth of the world. You know, it, it's the reality about how this world works, both in terms of who Jesus is as the pinnacle of this of the whole story, um, but also in terms of having your eyes, you know, having the, the sort of the um, uh, the shades taken off your eyes to be able to see Caesar and and the rest of uh, Corinthian society to see it for what it is. Um, so the language is is quite pervasive, um, and yet you know when you read Corinthians, you can't help but be um, <clears throat> become a little bit preoccupied with with more with the problematic things like this whole business about you know the the man and his stepmother, <clears throat> you know, and the lawsuits and what do you do about marriage and <clears throat> eating food sacrificed to idols and and what happens when they about tongues and all this sort of stuff and you can kind of mistakenly think that you know fundamentally it's a book it's an occasional book about a whole bunch of problems going on there and then um and he's giving you know a series of answers to it whereas it is um it's a much fuller understanding to read what he does in say the first four chapters where he sets it up in terms of this incredible contrast between between two ways of knowing uh and the resolution he brings at the end which is the resurrection of jesus and uh and the fact that we're going to share in that resurrection at some point so if i just um oh and the other thing is as we go into this is to is is to to connect those bits in the middle you know the stuff about the man and his stepdaughter and the the food and the idols and marriage and all those other occasional is, issues Every one of those issues is connected to the question of rank and status within Corinthian society. And, and that's the connection back into knowledge, because as we'll see, there's this really tight connection in Greco-Roman society between uh, status, education, and knowledge. And, you know, in, in simple terms, it's only those of significant status and, and rank that actually are educated, that can be educated. So, uh, you know, some, some scholars have said that literacy might have only been 10% in the Greco-Roman world. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and that in order to, therefore, to, to, to be an educated person, uh, you, um, you have to have had significant rank or status or vice versa, to have become an educated person is like having a, a new status that you can trade on. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and both of those things are evident uh, in this book. Um, so I thought I might um, do something a bit different in gospel conversations. I thought I might actually read the Bible, if that's, <laughs> if that's okay. So I'm going to read a, a, a chunk from uh, 1 Corinthians into the beginning of 2 Corinthians. Because you will hear all the themes here that shape the whole book. And that makes sense, I think, of the faith, hope and love thing in First Corinthians 13. So I'm reading from uh, chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was proclaimed to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness uh, to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and, and uh, Greeks, 
Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of, um, of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us uh, wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, that him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my proclamation were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Uh, it's a, um, there's a number of things in there that are, well, I mean, it's just rich, it's beautiful. There's a number of things in there that really help us uh, set up what we're seeing here. So the, the first is the strong, obviously the strong contrast, um, a, a way of knowing, a way of, of being sure, of being certain about the world um, that Paul is saying the gospel um, has uh, confounded uh, both of those. So <clears throat> for the Jewish person, it's the sense of uh, connection to the past, uh, but connection to the past that is verified, if you like, by the holders of the keys to that power in the present. Um, so while Paul will say, you know, Jesus is the fulfillment of the story uh, of, of back to Abraham uh, for for Paul's uh, you know, original colleagues, the Pharisees, um, that, that's ruled out immediately. And at the same time, they're saying, well, if there's any, any credibility to this, then give us the signs that show us this is true. And, of course, the great irony of that all the way through the Gospels is Jesus keeps doing the signs and they keep disbelieving or keep trying to find some, some other explanation for it. And, of course, for Paul, the great sign of all is the resurrection, it's the crucifixion and resurrection, which they refuse to believe, and therefore they regard, regard the message as foolishness. For the, for the Greeks... Just before, just before you go on to the Greeks, as you're talking about the <clears throat> Pharisees yeah. and their use of the past, um, I was seeing a parallel... Uh, we often do that ourselves. We kind of uh, um, well, you know, turn the past into a kind of an archive. Yeah. Um, that is our, our whole job is to replicate. I mean, I think the Christian church, you know, with its, um, you know, if, if you're a Protestant love of Luther and Calvin, and it's almost like, how can we recover what they've got? Yeah. It's, it's a sort of a psychologically similar fault to the Pharisee. No, no, it's, you know, it's your life that matters. You've got to see your, God's work is continuous and evolving and, and his yeah. interest is you now and he's got the past to equip you to do something now. I mean, that's, uh, uh, do you see that as a similar thing? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I know this is music to our, our ears given how, what our life work has been about. But, um, you know, to me, the, <clears throat> the gospel is... Um, uh, you, you can't separate it from the phenomena of improvisation and innovation. Um, <clears throat> that when I read uh, this letter and when I read all of Paul's letters, um, you know, I think I've, I may have even said this in gospel conversations at some point, but I think it's a, um, it's a silly exercise trying to figure out what is the centre of Paul's theology, you know, um, and, you know, people argue about it's justification or it's the spirit or whatever else. Um, <clears throat> there is no such centre in that sense, except um, his preoccupation with Jesus and with his uh, death and resurrection. And what you find in every letter of Paul's is, uh, like this one, is... There are, he, he's going to now have to engage with issues that, as you know, um, he may have in person engaged with them, but we don't. In terms of his writing, he never has before, and and there's a kind of there's a an improvising that goes on, working his way out from what he knows to be true about Jesus and what he's accomplished, and this bigger world story, and so he keeps translating from that world story into new human contexts of experience, and <clears throat> pardon me, and improvising. And improvising so brilliantly that they are in fact innovations 
um, that he starts to do things with language no one's ever done before. He starts to uh, construct ideas no one's ever done before and, uh, and things like that. And, and I argued in a little paper uh, years ago that, um, <clears throat> that it's intrinsic to the nature of the gospel, that the gospel needs new contexts. Um, it needs to be translated because its power is not just in uh, saying what we've always said, and I don't mean for a moment to rubbish that or discredit that, but its power lies in being able to say something new um, that, is, that is still profoundly connected to the person and work of Christ. And, and I think that actually is, is really, really close to this whole idea of faith, hope and love. I think if you, if you see it's a mistake, to, for example, to see faith in this sense as being intrinsic to knowledge, as faith meaning well, you've got to always be faithful to the past and you know, pick your favourite period in history. You must be f- faithful to that. But rather it's faith in the sense of thank you very much to all who've gone before me. You know, I'm appreciative of them. I'm respectful of them. I stand on their shoulders, but I'm, I'm forward-looking. That's, that's hope. And, and fundamentally, you know, the direction of love for me is not to any period in history and any particular person that I think I've got to stick with, be it Calvin, Luther or Augustine or anybody else. But the person I want to stick with is, is Jesus, who's always compelling me forward, always into contact, always incarnation. Yes, and, and to pick up another uh, theme uh, from what you've just said, we tend to think of knowledge as a dead static thing. Yeah. Uh, whereas the kind, you know, the kind of knowledge that's in play here is clearly knowledge in, in, in action. You know, um, I'm acting in a circumstance. That's how I, that's, that, and, the, and the knowing is informing my acting. In a, so it's a, it's a living knowing. Yeah. And to have a living knowing, um, which I suppose you're going to say he develops in these circumstances, you, you need the face to shine and illuminate how I might know wisely in that circumstance in order that I would act wisely. Yeah. And, and likewise here, when he, when he talks about those that he, he's contrasting himself to and contrasting the gospel to, um, their knowledge isn't, isn't about static things. It, it's the manner in which they hold the beliefs that they have and the manner in which that works itself out. In particular, right through the letter, it basically works itself out as trying to reassure them of their own superiority and to defraud other people. So is that more the Greco-Roman view? You're going to yeah, but it, you on that. You're going to go onto that one. Yeah, I mean, you can see it. Obviously, if you, you know, read uh, the stories of Jesus, you can see that um, the uh, the Pharisees and 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 particularly the Sadducees and scribes and priests, they um, they might not be Greco-Roman. Uh, the Sadducees might want to be, but uh, but they've got their own version of rank and status uh, uh, that, that's going on and. Uh, uh, you know, they, they not only, it's not just that they look down on Jesus because of the things he says and does, but frankly, they look down on all of his contemporaries as well. You know, and that's why he says, you know, the burden that they carry, come to me because my burden's light, is contrast. It's not, not just the kind of, you know, we, we post-Reformation, we think of that as, oh, the burden of my sin, you know. But I think in the context, he's saying the burden of living under these people who put burdens on you, you know. Um, because you're, you know, you're superior. Uh, sorry, they, they see themselves as superior. Yeah. So, so in the Greco-Roman context, <clears throat> the, um, you know, uh, knowledge uh, is is very much seen in terms of this nexus with it, with education, and it's it's largely about having the kind of the um, it's almost like the keys in both cases. It's like having the, the keys to interpretation. You know, for the for the Jewish forebears, the keys are that you stick to all the traditions. Uh, in the in the uh, Greco-Roman context, it's that you stick to um, uh, to to the kind of um, the the big assumptions that have been passed on down through history, which uh, include things like no one gets raised from the dead, you know, um, and that. And frankly, that knowledge does be belong to the um, to superior people. I mean, I, I know in different contexts, you're a great fan of Aristotle. I'm, I'm not quite the fan of Aristotle. You are. But, um, but Aristotle makes it very, very clear in his letters that um, uh, only, only the superior man is capable of virtue. Um, 
that that uh, when he talks about virtue and, and and human life and human experience, he's very very clear that that the the the, the great unwashed of Corinthian society or any other society or Athens for that matter, they're simply not capable of virtue because they lack the intrinsic superiority. Um, so th these are these are basic assumptions uh, within the, the Greco-Roman context. Um, yeah. So so when he so then it's really powerful when you see that Paul is really quite rude in this passage, you know, um, in uh, chapter 126 uh, following when he says, think of you when you were called, not many of you are wise by human standards, not many of you are influential. Now, part of that is because Corinth, you know, was resettled um, uh, not that long back um, in, in history. And when Rome was destroyed, well, sorry, when Corinth was destroyed earlier than that by the Romans, um, basically uh, Corinth lost all of its noble families. Um, so you have a kind of a nouveau riche um, mm -hmm. at, at Corinth. And uh, so you have largely, you have pretenders, you know, in, in terms of, you know, if you say, it's a little bit like, you know, I'm mixing things here a bit, but a little bit like, you know, when, when Paul is criticizing um, Peter and, uh, and James in Galatians, and, and his trump card is basically, you know, you're not as Jewish as me. Uh, so, so, you know, don't give me your, your half-baked Jewishness, you know. Well, in effect, what he's saying here is, you know, you act like you are, you are those of, of established nobility, but you're not, you know. I know, I know better than that, you know. Um, your, your history is pretty thin and your, your claim to superiority is pretty thin. Um, and what has actually happened here in this, this strange irony is that um, there are these people who uh, would be literate, would have wealth, would have some claim within Corinthian society to be an elite of some kind, who seemingly have now taken their, their possession of this new message, this new story, as, as some kind of um, extra bit of status, some sort of bolster to their own rank. Now, certainly not in broader Corinthian society, that wouldn't be the case, but amongst their own cohort of people. And I think the clearest part of this is when you get to later in 1 Corinthians, when Paul talks about the meal. Uh, and yeah. um, and it, it always seemed really strange to me when I kept reading it according to the kind of reformed theological uh, glasses that I'd been given in my education a long way back as how is it that, you know, some people have got something to eat and other people don't have anything to eat and, and all that sort of stuff. And what the hell's going on here? Yeah. It starts to make a whole lot more sense when you understand how Corinthian society worked. That is, it's really plain. Some people can turn up when they want to, and when they do turn up, they are treated with respect. And some people can't turn up when they want to. They can only turn up when it suits somebody else. That is their employer or their owner or whoever. And when they do turn up, they are not even in this gathering supposedly around the one Jesus who has, who has declared, you know, in him there's no more male nor female, slave nor free, Greek nor Jew. Nonetheless, when they turn up at the meeting, they're treated like, sorry, that stuff still is in play. And, and you are lesser and therefore you are, you, are, you, know, they're, they're, you know, you get the scraps if you get anything. So, um, so they were importing yeah. into the church. Yeah. Their, their sort of um, unreconstructed worldview of superiority. Yeah, well, it's not, hard to, it's not hard to imagine. I mean, just look anywhere. You, you go to, and I, I'm not trying to be dismissive of all our brothers and sisters, but you go to any church anywhere and, and there are people, you know, who, who are wealthy, uh, who drive the better cars, who have the better house, who have whatever else, um, and they're treated that way. And, and, and they act like they have a, an entitlement to those things. And also you watch when uh, two people are converted and go into a church and one of those people's from the gutter, you know, if I might exaggerate, and the other is, you know, well-established, well-known, wealthy individual, they are treated profoundly differently. Well, even more profoundly, I think, than, than the we experience. I know from my work in um, West Papua, Mm. Um, which has been hugely um, Christianized, wonderfully so. But nonetheless, you, you, just below the surface, yeah. one of the things that is still strangling their culture is the big man, the big man culture. Yeah. 
Um, and you, you begin to see that this is not um, some failure to reform at the edges. It's actually a corruption at the heart that stops a lot of the spread of the gospel. And I think, you know, if you go to countries like Africa where terrible things happen still in Christian regimes, it's the nature of the conversion. I mean, a similar thing to, to Corinth must be happening. Yes, we've accepted Christ and that's genuine, but we uh, have imported in the old worldviews, which left to any human society will be hierarchical. Yeah, and I mean... The, the South Pacific comes to mind with this. I mean, you lived in Fiji for many years and, and you saw it there and I was in New Zealand for many years. And But I, but I remember running a leadership program when I was in uh, New Zealand and having conversations with uh, brethren who were uh, Samoan and, and Fijian, um, Tongan, um, Māori, and um, all of whom, you know, because I was drawing out this emphasis of one of the marks of of a leader um, who, who believes Jesus uh, is this kind of radical egalitarianism, you know, that, that, is, that is saying, I'm not better than anybody else, nor they than me, the kind of the marks of rank and status. Well, there may be some, some practical value to that in terms of responsibilities and things like that, but fundamentally, um, there is no, uh, no, no regarding of one person as greater than another. And all of these... Um, these leaders talked to me about just how difficult that was in their own cultures because when, um, unlike in, when the gospel came to Australia and to Indigenous people in Australia, where because of their own you know, horrible um, um, bias and prejudice, they could not see anything noble in Australia's first people. And so they, they did not do the things they did in these other, other uh, places. When they went to New Zealand or to uh, Samoa or Tonga or these places, there you can see in their own records, there was a sense of acknowledging some kind of nobility, which they attached to the existence of, of uh, social structures around kingship and things like that. And so they just, and because they brought the gospel from England and from other countries where that's exactly what you have in England, right? Um, they just kind of went, you know, you're at the top of the tree. So this is how you sit now within the Christian structure as well as a broader social structure. And we, we've, we've, missionaries have done it wherever they've gone, with, with rare exceptions. So, so, Mark, bring us some help. I mean, <laughs> what does Paul say? What, how does he try to reshift their, their paradigm? Yeah, so, so fundamentally, what, he, what he's saying to them is this, whatever true knowledge you possess is a gift, you know? Um, he's not discrediting education. He's not discrediting uh, uh, ability. I mean, you only got to read his own letters. The guy was brilliant, you know, and uh, and eloquent, um, and a phenomenal capacity with language, um, and in at least two, probably three or four languages. Um, so he's not anti any of those things. But what he's wild about is the use of any of those things to defraud others. Um, the use of any of those to in some way claim that others are less, less than, than himself or any other person. So what he, the way to get at that, of course, is it's, it's grace all the way through. If, if the, the, the coming and the dying and the rise of Jesus is gift to us, so is the knowledge of that. And, and then, and in fact, so is our life. Our life is gift. And if it's gift, it's, there's, there's two dimensions to that. Not only is it a recognition of the one who gave it to you, but it's given to you on behalf of others, you know, which is why, the, you know, the, the life of faith can't just be lived in isolation. Um, and it, it must be lived in, with other people where the manner in which we are with those other people is the manner in which God himself has been with us. So the kind of knowledge that uh, I've got a picture in my mind of an inner core of, let's say, substantial knowledge, which could could be the creeds, could be the new Christian gospel. But yep. uh, to be living, that needs to have uh, uh, faith shone into it. Um, one needs to see the whole world as gift and and it needs to have love shone into it. Otherwise, it won't even be knowledge. Absolutely. Yeah. So I was going to... Um... Uh, just if I go back to that passage I read a moment ago, just two things I think really worth just keeping in mind. This, this um, quote that he, he has from Isaiah where he says, 
I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Now, you could look at that and think, well, this is some sort of, you know, this is about as bad an anti-intellectual statement as you'd ever get. Um, but that's not what he's saying. Um, what he's basically saying is the construction of knowledge, the construction of wisdom, independent of God and independent of of other people and the implications for other people, but supremely, of course, independent of how God has now revealed himself. Because, because remember, Paul will call Jesus the new man. He'll call him effectively the new law, right? But law, not like law before, but he'll also call him the wisdom of God. So for Paul, all those ideas are all focused now in Jesus. You know, if you want to know what true knowledge is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what true wisdom is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it is to be a true human, look at Jesus. Uh, you want to know, you know, how do I fulfill the law? Look at Jesus, which doesn't mean following the letter. It means my life looks like his life. Uh, and and so, so what he's saying here in this, this thing, which on the surface sounds like an anti-intellectualism, what he's saying is no. Um, what God has done in Christ is a profound reworking, rewiring, reorienting of everything that we've thought is is knowledge. Is uh, so that doesn't mean we're we're anti-science or we're anti-logic or we're anti-rationality, no, not in the least. But it means that all of those things we regard as gifts in service of the one who gave them to us, and in service of the ones that that um, that we can serve. Um, so so as you go through. You, you, you get this refrain in different places where he'll talk about a particular group and he'll say, in effect, so you know, <laughs> you know that an idol is nothing, okay? But not everybody knows that. And he'll say, if you're knowing that, which, of course, Paul would agree with, that, not, that an idol is nothing, but he'll say, if your knowing of that effectively means that you go to the person who doesn't know that and basically say, well, you're pretty stupid, aren't you? You know, and I am superior to you. Then Paul would say that knowledge uh, is a distortion. It it might be true, but it's a distortion because, in other words, the the mark of knowledge in, in the, is not just is it a true fact. The mark of knowledge is is the effect of it, uh, that which the knowledge of Christ brings. Um, so uh, in, in chapter, uh, yeah, I think it's in chapter 8 where he does that thing about, yeah, about the food sacrifice to idols. We know we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Um, the, the man who thinks he knows something uh, does not yet know as he ought to know. But the, uh, but the man who loves God is known by God. So this is the, this is the halfway point through to chapter 13 and uh, faith, hope, and love. Um, and if you, if you look at that last little bit, the man who loves God is known by God. You've just got to play with that a little bit and with what he says above to start realising um, this, this runs in both directions. Um, the man who loves God is known by God. That is, he's been, he's been called by God. The one who knows God is loved by God. The one who, you take that back to the earlier bit, the one who knows truly is the one who loves truly the one who can locate the things we know within the context in which we know among the relationships in which we know such that the manner in which we know uh, is true to all of those things and therefore it's life-giving it's never defrauding it's never diminishing yeah it's, it's very intriguing that uh, chapter eight you know, it seems to say, at first glance, when I read it, as you were talking, it seemed the second part is a non sequitur. You know, the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. There's this sense of presumptuousness. You think, you know, you've got it packaged up, um, you know, all the kind of pseudo-certainty that the modern world seeks. If you don't preserve mystery, you, you, you're not getting there. But then, but the man who loves God is known by God. There's a sense of... As you're saying, I think the implication is the one who really knows something begins that knowledge in, in its rooted in the sense, I'm known by God. You yeah. know? And so if you leap forward or, or come back from, from chapter 13, it's not hard to see then that, you know, um, by the way, it, if it was true knowing, it would be characterized by faith, 
by hope and, and by love. And by love. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, it says the man who thinks he knows something is not that you know as he ought to know. We are so wired to just simply saying, is it true? Now, in one sense, of course, I don't want to diminish that, especially in the, the horrors we've seen the last four years around, you know, fake news and all the claims of fake news, which have been about certain people just wanting to distance themselves from what is the truth um, in order that they can reconstruct their own world, which in a lot of, it's not hard to see in this context, is frankly all about certain people's status and rank and their, their superiority over other people. So we just think, is it true? And But Paul is saying that for him is insufficient. Um, that's, that's not a full enough understanding of... Um, of what it is we claim to know. So he'd have the conversation with us and say, well, yeah, you know, uh, I think you're right, but you're wrong. Because, because the manner in which you now display this knowledge, as, as you'll say towards the end of this chapter, um, this brother is destroyed by your knowledge. He's not saying destroyed by your false knowledge, destroyed by your true knowledge. Uh, so... What you, what you hold is right, but the manner in which you hold it is destructive. Yeah. That is, it, it does not, what all that is going on in a person's mind is, do I have certainty? Am I, am I correct? You can see here, it's all about, I want to be able to say to all you other people, I'm superior to you because my understanding is superior to yours. And, and you just run that through the filter of faith, hope, and love and go, whoa, 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 whoa. This is a, the idea might be correct, but the whole um, experience of what it is to know is a distortion. I was just, just thinking as you were talking, uh, and perhaps in our final talk next week, we're going to talk about practical yeah. workings of this. What it, uh, what it says about being a good teacher. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If you, if you don't love your pupils, um, you actually don't know, is it, you don't know anything. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, now, you did say something intriguing at the very beginning that I don't want to, um, I don't want to let slip, um, which is take us to 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, that is such an epic chapter on the resurrection. Yep. Uh, one of my favourite, I know it framed a lot of the patristics and their thinking about the end of all things. Talk to us about how this, in what ways is that a climax to what you're talking about? Well, it's a... It, he doesn't mention uh, knowing, knowing and knowledge as such in this chapter. Or maybe he doesn't. I've just missed it. It's, I'm sure someone will uh, will write in and tell us that <laughs> I've missed it, and that's fine. I'm very happy to be. Well, uh, Tippy does say I, you know, I received what. Yeah. What I received, I, so he does give some creedal statement. You know, so that is that is the connection. Is that at the end of the day, <clears throat> he he comes back to saying. Uh, you know, all, all knowledge and all claims of knowledge now is subservient, if you like, um, to that which I received and that which I pass on to you. Um, and the pinnacle of that is that God has raised this man from the dead. Right. Um, and and that, that in this, we, the, here is our, our faith, here is our hope, and here is our love, um, that God in his kindness has destined us to be the same as Jesus, effectively. Mm. Uh, I know that'll ruffle some people, um, but but basically what Paul is claiming here is that the experience that Jesus ex has experienced is the one that we will experience. Now he doesn't he doesn't collapse us. It doesn't mean we're now Jesus or we're now God. Um, not the least. We still love and worship the one who did this on our behalf. But <clears throat> but God is not God's great plan for us is not to give us a a lesser version of resurrection than Jesus himself experienced. Um, uh, we, we will um, uh, put on. And, um, yeah, um, I lost my own strain, train of thought. you're thinking. I mean, um, of course. We're getting old, Tony. <laughs> yeah. That, that just, you know, we're getting wiser as we lost. I mean, that point about becoming as Jesus, of course, to the modern evangelical mind might be a little bit of a shock, but it certainly wasn't to the patristics, you know, um, Irenaeus, I think, famous statement, you know, God became 
man in order that man might become God. They had a higher view of uh, the divinization of, of humanity than the modern churches managed to rescue. And obviously they were able to distinguish that, but that they seem to begin from this point that the participation is bigger than we thought, which is, I think what you're saying is, I mean, because 1 Corinthians 15 begins with a resurrection, but ends up with God being all and in all. Yeah, yeah. And actually there is a, we can connect this back to another part of where we started about knowledge in terms of the Greco-Romans. And I mentioned um, the, um, well, I don't know if I did mention, but um, it's not for a moment to think that your average person in Corinth has ever read Plato or any of the pre-Socratics or, or Aristotle for that matter or anybody else or, or even read or heard any of the particular um, uh, moral philosophers of the, of the time that we, we know of, um, you know, Seneca and Masonius Rufus and all these other people. But nonetheless, the ideas, the ideas from those people were pervasive. And in particular, the idea that I'm thinking of here is, is right through <clears throat> all of Greek literature, there is this assumption uh, that um, effectively that, that this, this stuff, materiality, physicality, um, is inferior. Um, that um, as each of the philosophers grappled with the question of one and many, unity, diversity, how is it that life can be so incredibly diverse and yet somehow it all hangs together? How is it that um, uh, if I say the word law or justice, we seem to all know what we're talking about, even though there is no single way of thinking about justice that's pervasive across our world or even across the Greco-Roman world, as Aristotle found when he did his survey of 150 um, Greek states, city-states. Um, everybody had an idea of justice, but nobody had exactly the same idea. So the philosophers, you know, were intrigued by this and trying to give an answer to, to um, how does this work? And that's where you get the whole thing about um, uh, atoms, Democritus, or... Um, or whether, you know, earth, wind, fire, water, you know, is, are there certain elemental things that, you know. But Plato's way of describing this, I think, became the most influential, even amongst people who'd never read him. Uh, and that is, that, in effect, to denigrate the world of physicality and materiality um, and to, to, to basically deposit that the only thing that is, that is real, that is, that is um, true, uh, is these um, eternal forms uh, or I ideas or ideals, if you like, such that <clears throat> uh, the human being is at best some sort of approximation uh, of the ideal form of what it is to be human or whatever we see in the world that we think is beautiful or we think is loving or we think that it's just, it is an approximation of what true beauty is. And not only is it an approximation, but it is inevitably always corrupt. Um, so in that mindset, the idea of incarnation is, is an absurdity, a complete absurdity. Mm -hmm. if, if the gods get connected to us, it's a mess. And, of course, uh, their own stories show you that. I mean, <clears throat> the gods are, are, show the, uh, often behaviour worse than any of the humans, <laughs> you know, and what they get up to. Uh, so anything that comes from the, the realm of the, um, the eternal, the invisible, the, the unchanging... Uh, if it gets involved in this, it, it, it's a mess. So the assumption is that um, uh, the, for a person to, to move towards a truer understanding of life is to uh, increasingly distance yourself from dependence upon on here. This is why um, the Greeks never developed science in the way that we think of it, um, because um, uh, empiricism, evidence, uh, was in inherently faulty. You know, it's the whole idea of you put a stick in a, in, in a, in a lake in a, or a pond and the stick bends. Now, you know it doesn't bend. <clears throat> you know, you can lie down and roll up your toga and see that it's still straight, but it looks like it bent. And, uh, and for the, the Greek philosophers, that's just an indication of how the mind is deceived. Um, and therefore, if you want to um, uh, know truly, you need to distance yourself from relying upon the senses and rely upon some sort of, um, hi, Anne, <laughs> sneaking around in the background, <laughs> uh, uh, rely more and more upon some sort of pure rationality, okay? So the incarnation is just an absurdity, but likewise is the resurrection. Um, 
because they could have coped with the idea of resurrection. Frankly, they would cope with the idea of resurrection as a lot of Christians think about it, which is somehow that Jesus becomes a glorified spook, you know, and that whatever happens to us uh, post his return uh, or death or however these things happen in the New Testament, it's a little bit inconclusive about that, is fundamentally we end up being spooks, you know. Uh, there's no materiality. And, and this passage is taken as proof of that because he talks about there's a physical and there's a spiritual. Whereas what, you know, um, you've got to take the resurrected Jesus as, as your point of departure on this. And, yeah, he's, he's different. He, he can turn up in a room when the door's locked. But at the same time, he still turns up bearing the marks of his own slaughter. And, and he can say to Thomas, put your finger there if you want to. He has breakfast on the beach with his friends. Um, th this is not a sham physicality. Um, but what it is, is a physicality and an entire existence now characterized by the presence of the spirit. And that's what he means when he says first spiritual, second, uh, first physical, second spiritual, not as in non-material, non-physical, but as in characterized by the presence of the spirit, just as Jesus himself is. And that's why, of course, at the end of the Bible, we don't all disappear to heaven, but heaven comes here. And, and all the, the hope of the entire scriptures about living a, a wonderful uh, material existence, you know, real human beings um, inventing and exploring and doing all those amazing things and writing music and everything else. The assumption is, oh, yeah, that's, that's our future. Not, not uh, going to eternal church services, you know, uh, in some sort of spooky clothes. Uh, and so here, um, <clears throat> pardon me, his picture of the resurrection is, is a, it confounds that Greco-Roman understanding of what can be ruled in as admissible or inadmissible, what can be ruled in as, as rational or irrational, what can be ruled in as, as a truth or, or, uh, or not a truth. Um, yeah, it's really, it's very helpful what, you, what you're saying. I mean, it takes a while to absorb, but essentially uh, to confound the platonic concept that um, true knowledge will be obstructed and generalised. Yeah. Um, the implications of the dying and rising of Jesus um, are to, that, that God's true knowledge is, was located in the person. In, yeah. a, in an event, um, that event was a launching pad to um, not depart from this heaven and earth, but to transform this heaven mm -hmm. and earth, um, such that the physicality will be infused with the spirit. Yeah, um, absolutely. And he—that—that's um, the hope. I mean, as you were talking about knowledge, I was thinking about that tremendous verse in Habakkuk. Uh, Chapter two, um, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, which is clearly what's being uh, evoked in that God will be all and in all. Um, and it, it's not that we will go to God's place, but the knowledge of God will infuse all and in all. Um, and, and that that knowledge has been uh, revealed incarnate, yeah. Jesus. So... <clears throat> Locus with yeah, and what he's done is he's revealed love and created hope and um, given faith a object um, uh, and, and and so a person is the, is 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 the key to everything and and I mean it. You know, my picture of Corinthians now, from what you said, is that you know the beginning and the end are quite lyrical um very very um uh, they're, they're, they're almost poems and hymns to the glory of god and then there's this he really in platonic terms goes right down to the base um but he applies in order to interpret each of those situations he he interprets it now through the lens of the dying and rising of jesus and its implications yeah and if i could maybe just to finish off if i could loop this back to <clears throat> some of the stuff we said earlier that um, this Paul finishes that chapter, chapter 15, and he says, you know, stand firm, let nothing move you. Um, and 
you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's really, it's very tempting and it's been very common to read it as your work, your labor in the Lord. That is your labor of a certain religious kind, you know, your, the things that you do that, frankly, we would think of as having something to do with church or having something to do with, with uh, evangelism or whatever. These are the things that we would think of as labor in the Lord. Whereas I think it's a, it's a much better understanding to see that um, because of the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Because of the Lord, um, uh, all that which you do with your hands and your feet and your mouth and your entire body, um, now reframed from that being all on behalf of your own rank and status and I'm, and I'm defrauding other people, uh, all about your own superiority, that now reframed in terms of the grace that's been given to us and characterized by faith, hope and love and now supremely with the hope made clear to us that it is all about what, what God has accomplished in the resurrected Jesus and what the future for us is, not about what we can accomplish for ourselves, um, that whatever it is we do with our lives, true to these, these great moments, you know, these great revelations of God in history, uh, past and future, um, those things are not in vain. And if you go back to, um, I think I may have mentioned to you this before, that um, in, um, you know, today, certainly in Australia, um, we use language like bogan or, or Westie or whatever as a, as a kind of a put down. And um, in the, as people are being, it was somewhat unsophisticated. In the classical world for a thousand years, the phrase is, um, he works with his own hands. That, that is the mark of a person who is not to be taken seriously by the elite because no person um, uh, would ever, no person of any, any kind of superiority would ever actually work with their own hands. They'll, they've got the money and the means and the position in society to get somebody else to do all that for them. Um, and yet Paul's description of his own life right through the first and second Corinthians epistles is effectively an incarnate life. And, and this is itself an offence to the Corinthians, you know, which he'll, he will spell out far more fully in the second letter um, of basically my working with my hands, my refusal of eloquence before, because of its nexus to education and elitism, um, my uh, association with the lowly, um, uh, my um, providing for myself, etc. all these things that I've done, uh, my weakness in that sense, all of these are scandalous uh, to the Corinthians who believe they have some sort of claim uh, at status. And yet for Paul, these are the marks of what it is um, to be someone who lives an incarnate life, who lives a life modelled after Jesus. Um, and, and I think Paul can show that, that in, his, in his own connections that you see in all of his letters, that's not just about only people who have no means uh, of improvement in society are the only ones who can live an incarnate life, but people of any station in life, whatever, whatever rank and status they've been born into or they've inherited through their parents or whatever, uh, or even through their own means, now having come to know Christ, those things are redeemed. Those things are reframed, uh, rewired, um, such that, that the things we do through, through those things are our labour in the Lord, mm -hmm. and that, it's, that it's not in vain. Um, and you can see that to, to believe that, to live like that, takes a profound reworking of what we think is true. And uh, it's an ongoing transformation. You, you yeah. can't just do it and put it on the shelf. Um, but uh, uh, as, as we see here, um, in, uh, exemplified in, in, in the book, um, he had to work on that. He yeah. didn't have ready-made answers to the yeah. what, five or six or seven situations they presented. He didn't have ready-made answers. That's right. Uh, he had to go back to the, the 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 new wisdom and knowledge of God in the incarnate Jesus and and His death and resurrection. So I mean, the, I think the, for him, the incarnation was the connection of of that entire project of God that now reveals the new way of being. Well. Um, 
uh, you know, Corinthians is a big book, and I know we've talked for about an hour. So it, it's um, it, it to have done what you've done within an hour is um, uh, really helpful, Mark. Um, so, so so grateful for the way you think, and um, uh, you know, I know that it's not just you, but your association with people like Edwin over the years. And um, it's it's just so fresh, uh, such a fresh way of looking um, at this great heritage of faith in the scriptures. So. And it's not a bad segue to the next time we get together that our labour is not in vain. Exactly. Amen. And we'll look at some labours <laughs> next time. Take yeah. care. See you. Bye.